Welcome back, the Etcetera's episode three. Kick the show off with some pretty big names, pretty mysterious guys in a, in a weird way, and we're off to a great start. This week, we're putting a little bit of a different twist on it. We're focusing on something that's very near and dear to both of us for different reasons. That's Slam Magazine. Kate, this episode comes off of a conversation you and I had where you told me that Slam is more important to the culture than Sports Illustrated and ESPN. Can you explain to everybody why you feel that way? Yeah, Slam was so important to us because it was just all basketball. You look in the Sports Illustrated, ESPN Magazine, they gave you a variety of sports. But as somebody who just wanted to take in basketball content, you know, Slam was that magazine for. So from kids all the way up until now, it made us feel, feel a part of the game. Yeah, I think, you know, this is like the magazine era. And we, t- we talk about it a little bit here where how we kind of had to seek these out. And for us, we had this source and later we had XXL, which has a, <laughs> a weird synergy yeah. with Slam and, and they're actually related. We find out in this episode. So these things were like, you know, we swore by these. We had these all over our house. We put these pictures on our wall. Yeah, These were just part of our existence. And for you as a hooper, you know, obviously you wanted to be in this and then uh, once upon a time, I was a hooper, but then later, you know, as a journalist, <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it represented something else, a whole different significance. So I'm with you. I mean, I know in my life, I've had way more slam magazines than I've ever had Sports Illustrated and cared yeah. about who's on the cover more and who they covered in the coverage. So yeah. it felt like a good place to go for this. And again, it's a little bit different. We're not talking to the singular guest here, but we are talking about something that matters to us and matters to this culture and i think uh it's a great place to take a convo and talk to two legends two legends in the industry and two legends at slam with russ and scoop here so yeah man let's get to it let's get into it I want to introduce our guest today. We got Scoop Jackson, former writer and editor at, at Slam. He's done work with The Source, with XXL. He's currently at ESPN. And Russ Benston, former writer, former editor-in-chief at Slam. Uh, he's worked with GQ Complex, Soul Collector, which I know from way back as ISS, <laughs> Sportsnet NY, and on and on and on. Fellas, how y'all doing? First of all, thank you for being here and having this conversation with us. Well, we're good. I'm good. I can't speak for Russ. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> no, doing good. Doing good. Thank you for having us, man. So you got you guys, when you hear someone like Kay say that, we're talking about an all-time great, you know, no matter how the debate settles out or whatever, but putting the ball in the bucket, this guy's up there with anybody. When you hear somebody like that say, yo, the thing you guys put your blood, sweat, and tears in for so many years is more important than these big brands to the culture. Uh, what, what do y'all, how, how do y'all feel about that? What do you guys think about that? I think we did our job. Because <laughs> that, that, that's, that's the lane I think, you know, and Russell would probably co-sign on this. That was the lane we were trying to secure. We were looking at what was being done. Well, we were looking at what wasn't being done and what wasn't re- being represented from a publisher standpoint uh, when he dealt with sports, specifically basketball. And we just tried to unapologetically do that. And, and if, 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 Kevin felt that way, and not only Kevin, but a lot of other players, you know, and even the generation before him. We wanted to be that, that, that publication that connected directly through them, not just in the way the stories were told, 
but of who we was telling stories about. You know what I'm saying? Like, people would not pay attention to the playground legends. People would not pay attention to the non-Hall of Fame, former NBA, ABA superstars. People wouldn't pay attention to a lot of the female basketball players that were hooping. You know, they were bypassing and going straight for this, this box of individuals telling basketball stories, and the box is so much bigger. And our thing was to include those people in the whole story of basketball, not just the fragmented story of basketball, the entire story of basketball. So not just for Kevin, but it, if, if we did our job, there's generations of players that are playing right now that should feel the exact same way. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think what Kevin said, I mean, that validates what, what we believed in from the start. And I think like, you know, and I, I can't speak for Scoop, but I can guess, you know, us coming up, same way what Kevin was saying, like you're looking for basketball content, maybe it's not even in every issue of SI, you know, like you're waiting to see what MJ was wearing on the court. If you don't have WGN or if you're not scoop living in Chicago, um, you know, you don't, you don't get to see that. So, um, you know, the idea of a publication just covering basketball and all of it, you know, from the start too, that's, that's, I think important too. Like the, the model or the player that first issue even was based on wasn't Michael Jordan. MJ was retired. Mm -hmm. It was Stephon Marbury who was in Mm -hmm. high school at Lincoln, you know, like we were able to start and that's on Dennis page, the publisher, like, you know, literally build at that ground level with a kid who like, maybe everyone didn't know about quite yet, but everyone should know about. And that kind of, you know, fed everything that came after. So how was that first issue with Stefan Marbury? What was that? What was that whole rollout like? You remember Russ? I, you know, I because I wasn't there in the very, very, very beginning. Like right. I found when I first saw Slam, I found it on a newsstand, like in a grocery store in Delaware, where I was living at the time <laughs> at like two in the morning. And I'm flipping through it like, man, this exists. Like I need to get involved with this. Like this is the place I want to work. Um, and I basically just bothered everybody in the office until they were like, all right, we'll, we'll give you something. That's usually right. Way um, right. <laughs> you know, from what I remember, Steph was like, I think Steph was the, I want to say he was the first like punk or whatever. That's what I was about. Yeah. I was about to say he was the first high school diary we had done. And so we had a, we had a relationship with Steph building up to him, us even doing a story about him. You know, we had a relationship with him building up and, that's the one thing that made it easy for us is doing the punk session and doing the high school diaries is that we established a voice for high school basketball players that nobody really was doing. The only time you get any high school coverage, maybe Streets of Smith highlighted players who to watch out for this All-American team and Sports Illustrated did their faces in the crowd. And that was it. But we were giving high school basketball players a voice. And Steph, because he was New York and Slap started in New York, he was an easy gift for the first one. So once Steph got through Georgia Tech, got into the league, it was easy sale. Like, hey, man, you know, we want to get you and KG together to do this. He's like, man, shit, y'all like family. I'm all in. Right. So that's, Kevin, that's what it was like getting Steph is we already had an established relationship with him. And the one thing that worked on our behalf was always allowing the players to be themselves. That's it. Like, all right, here's uniform. You know, only thing we say is you got to wear uniform. Anything else you want to do is cool. So, you know, when you, when you come in with your ice, you come in with your rolling, you come in whatever, shoes untied, you know, however you want to roll this. Yeah, I think, 
I want to say there was an unofficial like don't smile on the cover rule for a while. Yeah. <laughs> people actually said stuff too. Like they would come in for a shoot and be like, all right, I know not to smile. Right. Like, right. I feel like one of the first ones was maybe Kobe on that Shaq and Kobe cover. But mm. that but that was like uh That was like tonic. But it also wasn't yeah. like a happy smile. It was like a oh, I'm fucking with you smile. Right. So right. you know, it, it still it still made sense. But I mean, going back to what Scoop said, it's like we did that Steph and KG cover, and like I think they cut the sleeves off the shooting shirts themselves they did. at that mm -hmm. shoot they did. Know, like or, or kg wearing the backwards visor on the cover like that was right. stuff that that definitely was not happening in like mainstream um sports publications you know and jumping a little ahead you know when hoop like airbrushed iverson's tattoos off on the cover yeah it's like how do you even do that? Like, do you think that like kids are going to look at this and not know what Alan Iverson looks like? He's on exactly. television with no sleeves every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, how do you think you're even going to get away with that? But like, you know, people looked at it in such a different way. And like, I remember, and I'm, I'm betting this happened to scoop sometimes in locker rooms, you know, like beat writers would come up to us sometimes and be like, say something about us being fans. And they kind of meant it in like a derogatory way. Like, you know, mm -hmm. you're just, yeah. and it's like, no, I will own that. Yes, we are. And that's why we <laughs> cover this the way we do. You know, like there's an infinite amount of space to be positive about this stuff and to like, you know, give, yeah, like what Scoop said, give players a voice. Like, yeah, you guys can go out and chase whatever you want to chase, but, you know, we don't, we don't have to play that game. We definitely don't have to play that game the same way. Here's the thing, Russ. The reason KG and Steph rocked what they rocked and the way they rocked it was because of the Allen Iverson cover about who was afraid of Allen Iverson and the link mm -hmm. he was wearing. I remember during the photo shoot, they specifically asked, can we rock our ice like AI did? Mm. <laughs> We're like, sure, do your thing. And that, like, shit like that blew their mind because they were never able to do anything like that. And you could probably trace like a 10 cover stretch where guys wore increasingly big pieces. Oh yeah, like, always, yeah, always. <laughs> like the later KG and later AI where it's like, oh my God, like your chain is worth more than this photo studio. Right, exactly. But they weren't getting to cover the Source magazine. So this is their version of getting to cover the Source. That's, that, that's exactly what it felt like as a kid coming up that, that hoop. The, I felt the freedom every time I looked at a slam magazine. You know, as a, as a basketball player, you get put into this box of, of what role you need to play. And you look at other players in, in the league and you see how they operate. And then you look at slam and it's just like, oh, yeah, this is more of a street ball field. This is where I enjoy playing basketball. So a lot of kids opened that up. And our dream was to just be in that slam, no matter it was in the, the back of the book or where it was in the cover. I, we felt like just being in that book was important for any hooper did you guys you guys felt that way as you started to elevate i'm sure I, I would say for me i definitely felt that way the funny thing was there was definitely a different feel of players in like sort of the slam generation which i would say would have started with like steph's class like the 95 high school class and up then with guys prior to that you know like someone like a charles barkley who was already a, a global superstar before Slam even started, I think they looked at us maybe as kind of like, oh, who are these guys? Like, what are they trying to get done? But for someone like a Steph, for someone like a Kobe, you know, later on, LeBron, you guys like, you know, I think we grew up with you and you guys grew up with us. And I think, you know, we talk about the covers, like 
I almost look at those as album covers. Mm-hmm. And like we had Jonathan Mannion shoot a bunch later on. And I remember like going to Kevin Garnett's house to shoot him in Minnesota with Jonathan. And Jonathan fl- would always flip through his book. I don't know if he ever did that with you, Kevin. I don't know if yeah. you. I don't, yeah, I've, I've like, shot with Jonathan before. Yeah. Okay, so so he would show like all this stuff, and by then he had already shot Reasonable Doubt. He shot like both DMX covers, and like the DMX stuff like blew KG's mind. Like KG was just like, <laughs> you know, oh my god. So it's like you have someone on Kevin's level, you know, guys on your level, being as blown away by that stuff as we are by you guys. So it's like, I think it it helped put things on an even footing, which maybe made the covers work better. All right, man. They got a lot of interesting stuff to say, man. And and it's kind of crazy finding out that the model of Slam is based on Stefan Marbury. I don't know if you were shocked to hear that. I know I was. But it makes sense when you think about it. Steph is quintessential New York point guard, plays with that swagger. You know, you can see the city on him when he gets on the court. I thought it was interesting that they call him Steph throughout this. And then, you know, in this generation, Steph is a whole different person, whole different thing. And obviously no disrespect to that Steph. But you can see that they have that affection towards Stefan. You have a relationship there as well, right? You guys did the doc. You've, you've done some work. I'm sure you've met him, you know, in NBA circles even before that. What was Steph's impact on you throughout your career? Yeah, it was it was definitely interesting to hear the Steph stories and to realize his celebrity at that age and to do the documentary and to really sit down and talk with Steph about his journey from high school prospect to a potential NBA Hall of Famer. He was under the lights early on and Slam showed that early on that every game, every moment that he lived under was everybody was scrutinizing him. So to have that under him and to excel the way he did was special and to see his journey, you know, as a younger player who was starting to understand the league and starting to understand different players. It was, Steph was one of those guys that was must watch TV. I always liked the swagger he played with. And, you know, obviously his journey gets real fascinating when he goes to China. But like you said, it's crazy. He had this amount of celebrity at Mm -hmm. 17, 18 years old. And this is before, you know, we would know about a Mikey Williams dunking on people or we would know about about Zion, right? We knew about Zion when he was 15. It feels like, so Steph was just killing in his city. His city so happened to be New York, but made such an impact that he became like a national star. Like that's a crazy life to live at 17, even before the internet. And they did right by him. And it, that's yeah, how it goes. You know, you do right by somebody and they look out later. So they did. I was shocked to hear that, but it made sense. Like it clicked when they said that. Yeah, for sure. So with that said, man, let's get back to the convo and see what else these guys got to say. When you first got covered by Slam as a, as an All-American, what was that like? And then eventually you get a cover uh, a year later, two years later. What was that like for you? Like, you're the only one in the, in this chat here that's been on a Slam cover. <laughs> What's that feeling like, you know, I have, I have my watching those? <laughs> Man, it's, it's an incredible feeling, you know, first off, because as a competitor, you know you made it somewhere. Um once you mm-hmm. hit slam, you know, like uh, like Scoop said this earlier, like you, not too many people outside of your city and your town knew who you were. So to to feel like you were seen nationally, this is before social media. Obviously, it was always these ranking services when I was coming up. But to be in a magazine like that as a high schooler, because I got I got in the punk section when I was a senior. <laughs> 
and I had a nice little, uh, I had a <laughs> nice little feature in there. And <laughs> they did the photo shoot uh, uh, in my high school, and you know, once everybody knew I was doing the shoot for Slam, my popularity just went through the roof. <laughs> you know, and I was new at that school. You know, that was like my first. That was like in the first week I was at that school. I had a photo shoot for Slam, and so that. Everybody understood what that was. And then after the season being shot for the All-American um, feature, it was just like it, it was one of those things that it, that cover is going to be is going to be hit, uh, hung up in my house once I build it. You know, my kids are going to understand what that meant. So, it, like you said, it's just a part of the culture now. It's just deep in the culture now. And you guys just solidified yourself just organically and it, f- it feels good to be a part of slam you know especially as a former cover artist f- from a former cover athlete and then having features and then just knowing you guys shit was just incredible man i always felt like y'all had a different respect in the hoops world like in the journalism world they might have looked at you like the little brother or whatever but in the hoops world like you guys could get anybody and it felt like you know you had kobe on the cover you had braun on the cover early you had kevin on the cover early you you had all these people. What was your process of like finding these players before everybody? Because this is before you know overtime and and all these other Instagram accounts that would show us this random kid that can dunk in South Carolina. Like, what was your process of kind of weeding out who you felt deserved a stamp or whatever? I mean, you know, I'll, I'll take on a little bit of that and then scoop. You know, I know you got some like going back even earlier with like AI, but. uh you know, I think this goes back to something Kevin said too, where it's like you had tons of compelling people in basketball, but the way it was covered, so many so many people fell through the cracks, or so many people just like there was no outlet to give them the coverage they deserved. So like I think we were like we were able to feast on it. You know, like <laughs> you go to uh, the first uh McDonald's game I ever went to was 96. You know, that's Kobe that's Stephen yeah. Jackson. That's Mike Bibby. That's, you know, there you could build a whole issue just out of those dudes. Tim Thomas, Jermaine O'Neal, like that's a ridiculous high school class. So, you know, we were able to do stuff with guys then. And then you look even at Slam the way it built. You know, at first, Punks was one page on one guy. We were covering one high school guy an issue. Later on, like less than 10 years later, we're putting high school guys on the cover. You know, we've got like a... <laughs> an entire punk section that was kind of like basically hype, but in the back, but with all high school kids. So I think to sort of what Scoop was saying earlier, like guys wanted to be in it. And as we stretched out that high school coverage, you could cover a guy in high school and then cover him again in college. And then again, once they reached the pros. And then you would have had that relationship, like you said, with Steph. Yeah. So for someone like Kevin or obviously for Kobe or for um, LeBron, by the time they reached the pros, we probably already done a couple pieces on them. Yeah, so when yeah. we called, you know, they're like, yo, you've been riding with us since the start. It's not like someone being like, hey, we want to do something on you now. And then you're like, wait, where have you been? Like for the rest of my entire basketball playing career. Here's a quick story on my end. And it goes to what you, you're asking, Eddie. My whole existence with Slam started off exactly that way. Talking about high school basketball. And we got to find out about it for me. My first assignment that Tony ever gave, Tony and I came in the exact same issue, issue number three. Mm-hmm. And Tony's first assignment to me is I covered the Nike basket, high school basketball camp. And this is 1994. Vince Carter, Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, 
Shea Cotton. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, all these cats are at Nike's high school basketball camp. And Tony's like, I need a 1,200-word story on this. I'm looking at all these cats, and for the first time seeing them play and hooping, I'm like, this is not a fucking 1,200-word story. Dude, you got stars. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> these, I'm looking at all these cats hoop. I'm like, George Gervin's son, G, was averaging 27 a game. It was ridiculous. And I'm like, no. Nah. So I turned in a 3,500-word story plus a 1,200-word story. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't write no 12,000 word like your ass, Eddie. So I, <laughs> <laughs> but my point was that there was something here. And mm-hmm. when you start dropping names of high school ball players, from there, just a name mention. Sports Illustrated wasn't talking about these cats. Sport News wasn't talking about these cats. None of the NBA magazines was talking about cats. There was no website shit. There was no rival. None of this shit. These cats were basically obsolete outside of where they locally play basketball. The AAU circuit was kind of coming up a little bit. But it wasn't a big thing. We found out about these cats during the summer basketball camp thing, during the summer camp, during the thing where they would be these young high school superstars that were able to play in the poems. You know, you know, high school stars. I right, mean, you come off the bench, but you go play on our squad for the summer. You know, when you get little runs in, going to Pauley Pavilion in L.A., watching like Paul Pierce play against Magic and get abused before he went to Kansas and all that shit. That's how we found out about these young players doing this groundwork and stuff like that. But then using the back of the book to tell stories about. And if you look at what I'm saying is that, one, you don't get cats like me, looking like me, walking in as a journalist. That fuck with them from the beginning, like, nigga, you for real? You a journalist? <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, one, they don't see that. Two, the fact that you can, you know, conjugate a verb and put a sentence together fucks their head up second. So you're able to write stories about them. And then when these guys see you at least mentioning them and recognizing them. When nobody outside of their state or city recognizes them on a national level, they fuck with you for a long time after that. And that's how we got to know these players early, by doing stuff about high school ball players in camps and highlighting them. Like, all right, man, y'all watch out for this kid, Paul Pierce, out of Inglewood. He's going to be the truth, no pun intended. But you know what I'm saying? You do shit like that. And then when you roll back back up on Paul Pierce, you know, when he's in Boston, Yo, my nigga, what up? You know, that's, it's easy. It's real easy from there because you, because you respected them from the very get. Yeah. And some of it is too, like, yeah, do you want to go through like 19 layers of people to try and get Patrick Ewing to do a photo shoot that he's not even going to want to do? Or do you want to, you know, look for the next guys coming who are going to be in the pros in like two years anyway, you know, and the guys who are really not getting coverage like that? And Scoop, it's funny you say that because I feel like you probably are responsible for like more writers than like Kobe was for basketball players. Like you probably <laughs> did the same thing. Seriously, though. Yeah, I, I keep getting like, that. Thank you, man. Yeah, it's true, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. It is very true. No, no. I, I, I was about I'm to say it, but yeah. he said it himself. So it yeah. is. No, no, yeah, it's no, true. Yeah. The game's a lot darker now. <laughs> <laughs> the game's a lot darker now. <laughs> <laughs> then it was when I stepped in, man. The game's a lot darker. Ain't no doubt about that. Man, I'm happy that uh, Scoop Jackson decided to kind of throw his weight around a little bit about the mm-hmm. impact he's had I love on media. That. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I love that. Because I know I feel it from the media side. And I know talking to you, it's different for you when somebody of from the culture walks in. Even though they're media 
and then they do their job as the beat writer or whatever. Like when you see mm-hmm. a Logan Murdoch or Marcus Thompson, it's a little different. And, it's, yeah. and for a guy like you who's had your back and forth with the media, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> I know yeah. that's it's, it's got to be refreshing to be able to talk to a dude and be like, you know, hey, what you listen to? Or him put you up on some music or something. So tell people about that because I know you've told me, but I, I feel like people need to hear your side of that a little bit more. Most definitely. Scoop has always been respected amongst NBA circles and to know that you got somebody in there that wants to see you do well mm-hmm. um, from that side. I think that that was a key for Slam because they had a lot of guys that really trusted them and supported them with with everything they did. So whenever, you know, I seen Slam, no matter if it was Lang or, you know, Russ or I knew that they were led by Scoop, you know, and I, I knew that a lot of guys looked up to Scoop for, as influence. And I just respected him for his knowledge on the game, his his experience with you know different generations in hoop and just him being there you know just being in the gym in the gym being at practices and really feeling the enthusiasm that he showed for the game you know so I just respected him for just his for everything he brought to the table and I know he you know had a lot of influence on a lot of guys coming up and I felt like you know from this conversation you guys you probably took a lot from him and looked at his, his experiences as well absolutely man like the language he was able to talk with made it easier for media that came after him to be able to do that and to see somebody, you know, from the culture, somebody of color be that big in the world of media. It's like, yo, that's, it's you can actually aspire for that. I know it's funny being on the other side because a lot of times we come into these interviews and we come into these sessions blind and I'll meet artists, I'll meet hoopers, I'll meet players or whatever. And when they finally see me and I'm not just like some weird name on an email begging for their time or whatever, and then I talk how I talk and I look how I look and I might show up dressed in whatever I'm dressed in. And it's like, it's a different level of comfort and it helps. It's crazy how you could work your way up in that world and being a person of color, being a minority for a while, it's a struggle, right? It's, it's a detriment. But when you get around these other people who color, these other minorities, and these are the people you need to speak to, all of a sudden you can get to places with them that other people can't. And it's like, oh, now, now it's to my benefit, Most you definitely. know? So, I know school. It was interesting to hear him talk about his experience with that and how he's influenced the game so much in that way. And so I was just happy they brought that up because I might have forgot to ask because they was talking so all these crazy stories they telling <laughs> yeah. right. And so it's just dope to hear that and that he knows that. And one thing that stood out to me about their experience was the amount of support and freedom that they had mm-hmm. within the corporation, within the business, and to let school kind of lead that and tell those hip-hop stories it was subtle hip-hop stories underneath the basketball aspect of it it, it was definitely a moment and to have them on a pod and to, to get those and hear those experiences you know and how they see it in their perspective it brought me back to a lot of amazing times i had yes it's when you let people put their thumbprint when you trust people's knowledge when you trust their professionalism mm-hmm. and you, you you get great product out of that and you don't always get that trust from bigger companies bigger corporations so That's to know that slam had this kind of like us against the world mentality it shows it shows both in the way they approached it and in the product we got on the other end and it's funny that their identity is so attached to iverson because he's like that right he's that to a t and that's you know we're about to get we get to talk a little bit more about him but like I know there's some obvious influence in your game. I see the double cross. I see the I see the carry you do. <laughs> Yo, there's not a carry. It'll never be a carry. That's the Iverson cross. He didn't carry when he did it. And he got MJ with it. So they let it rock. But Iverson was such a huge, like just then, I can just go off for 
10 or 15 minutes about about what I took from Iverson and mm-hmm. how I tried to use what he brought to the game and put it in minds. And I felt like every kid across the world did that. But Slam understood exactly what Iverson was about. And they helped tell that full, authentic story around Iverson. Even though he was young into the league, the number one pick, I think that he really trusted them to tell his full, authentic story from his side. And, you know, and that touch from – you know, hoopers down to artists, down to anybody, they can understand Iverson. Iverson, one of those weird talents where what he does doesn't doesn't necessarily fit like in a team game. It doesn't necessarily fit within the frameworks, the traditional framework of like hoop. Yep. And then, you know, John Thompson, their whole story is like, yo, just go be Allen Iverson. And he's, he turns into AI, right? But Slam did the same thing with like his image with his story and the same – it's funny how it mirrors. Yeah. And they let AI come on with the fro and the chain and just be AI and everybody reap the benefits of it. And his impact, like people idolized Jordan and they wore his shoes, but Iverson represented something different and they idolized him for a whole different way. You know, he's 5'10". He's, he, he had us wearing Reeboks, like white and red Reeboks for no reason. And that was unheard of. And it's like, a, I'm not 6'11 like you. But I was like, I could hop around and get the cross off like AI like yeah. uh, when yeah. I get on the court, you know. So his impact is like so far and wide. You see it now. I hate when people say he couldn't play or he wouldn't be as good in today's game. It's like that's insanity. Like, yeah, he's the a The way natural. he got to the rim, yeah. the floating game he had. Like he he mastered the floater from so many angles. Like he being cr- – like you're going to let AI – ISO like this and, and like come on yeah like, well, I that's, mean that's absurd for somebody to be 5'10 and be the number one pick in the draft and for him to actually pan out to be a Hall of Famer like that is yep. just unheard of his athleticism and his natural talent could last in any era I think and his personality and style would touch in any era it would, it would hit in any era so you know that was that was a huge moment back in those days yeah and it's you know like I said it makes sense that him and Slam go hand in hand, and yeah. that was part of their fight to get him, you know, and to, to to represent him. And I think they represent the same energy, you know, the same kind of like, we know what we're doing, just trust us, and we're going to kill it for you. And they was able to do that, you know, and that's – it's funny. It's funny seeing his game in somebody like you because, <laughs> yeah. you know, traditionally you probably shouldn't have that, but you got a lot of it. And I know we talked about it before, so I, I see it, but, you know, it's – it's the idea of you kind of watching the highlight tapes like, yo, I got to get – and then people telling you, yo, come on, dog. You way too tall for that one. <laughs> yeah, because you see someone like Iverson, and he plays bigger than what he really is. So I'm, as a kid, you know, I'm looking up to somebody. I'm 5'9", and I want to be a six-foot point guard not knowing that I'm going to grow <laughs> until 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, so in my mind, <laughs> you know, I'm still thinking I'm a little man at that age. So, you know, but to – see something on TV and try to emulate it outside in a couple hours. That's what AI was for a lot of kids in our neighborhood. And then to realize that he comes from that same fabric that we come from. Yeah. That was huge, right? That was, that was a huge, huge part of that. That was a huge part of it. AI, man. Top five point per game average all time until you and Bron came around. Y'all knocked him out. He's seven now. That, and But he's, uh, <laughs> how many scoring titles? He's probably like second of all time. He might be second. He got. I think he had four of them. Yep, four times. I know you value that. I feel like it's not as valued as much as it used to be, but I know you value the scoring title. Yeah, most definitely. It's hard to score in the NBA. We've we've had the little debates, and I throw something at you. Yeah, but I'll let the yeah, score. Yeah, it's hard to be number one <laughs> in scoring in the NBA. 
You know, so you take that with a badge. It's a badge of honor right there. <laughs> Got to respect it. But yeah, man. All right. With that said, let's get back to this combo. Is it true that you threatened to quit over getting them on the cover? Is that? Can you tell us that story? Yeah, it wasn't. It was. I did threaten to say I would leave, but I don't. It was. It was probably a vile threat. I don't know if I would have left. <laughs> you know, my wife would have beat my ass. <laughs> <laughs> I want you look. You know. Um, but no, seriously. In all honesty, I had. I had. Um, I had gone to see Iverson in the Kinder League because I had gotten a call uh, about him like serving up the Kinder League. And uh, I went down to go see him. And what I saw, I only saw the second half of a game he was playing in the Kid League, and that's all I needed to see. And I called Dennis, the publisher, and I was like, yo, I, I literally said, I seen the future basketball, dude, and we got to put him <laughs> on the cover. And he's like, mm-hmm. never happened. You know, I'm like, you got to do this. Because this, like, is, this is what? This is like the fifth issue, maybe? Nine. Issue number nine. Nine, okay. Issue number okay. nine. And he's like, we never had a college basketball player on, on this magazine, I'm not going to do it. It's not going to make any money. And, oh, Russ, I don't want to interrupt my own story, but there's another rule of thumb. You mentioned one. You remember the other rule is don't put a white guy with a white background on the cover of the magazine. <laughs> <laughs> good rule, good rule. Yeah, right, right. But anyway, so Dennis and I went back and forth about this, and um, I said, look, man, if you don't do this, I'm out. And he was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to do it. But he did it to prove a point. You know, I can get like, I don't want to say super arrogant, but I can get super, super cocky to the point that I think I know more about writing than I actually do about journalism than I actually do. <laughs> and I'm going to tell another motherfucker how to do their job. And I'm trying to tell Dennis what's in the best interest of this magazine as if this is the first magazine Dennis has ever done. <laughs> <laughs> so saying, Dennis has done 30 years of this before I even got there. But his thing was, right. okay, I'm going to prove your point. This magazine's not going to sell, but I'm going to put him on the cover to prove a point. You may know this writing shit, and those, these are his exact words. You may know this writing shit, but you don't know this publishing shit. So he did put Alan Iverson on the cover of the magazine. He did a split cover, put Alan on the East Coast and Ed O'Bannon on the West Coast, and put Akeem Olajuwon on the rest of the country and globally. It wound up being the worst selling issue we ever had. <laughs> ever. Now... And he proved a point. He's like, see, this is what I'm telling you. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. But that issue is the reason we were able to establish a relationship with Allen Iverson because of mm-hmm. us. Like, that was, I think Sporting News technically put him on the cover. But we were the first persons to humanize Allen Iverson and treat him like a human being and put him on the cover and give him the space and basically celebrate what we thought he was going to become. Now, now, mind you, this meant next to nothing as far as actual shoots, because the issue 32, when we gave him the blowout, he was, I think, eight hours late for that shoot, maybe 12 hours late. <laughs> I forget. Either eight or 12. Yeah. Yeah. Something absurd. And then the next time we shot him for the cover after that, he didn't show up at all. Like, me and Clay, <laughs> Patrick McBride, drove to Philly, set everything up, and uh, Sixers PR went to check for him was like, uh, he's gone. <laughs> he's gone. So, like, he's what? Gone. Like, can you get him back? No. <laughs> Chuck so, worked on his own time. Yeah, Clay, Clay missed that one. And he was there for the one he was like eight hours or 12 hours late for. Um, but, here's a, but Rush, you know, this, you know this is real too. Anytime Slam needed an uptick in sales, that's when Dennis be like, let's get Allen Iverson on the, the cover. The annual <laughs> Allen Iverson cover was happening. The cover was happening. It might have been a nightmare, but yo, like, 
the first time I think I met Alan was bringing copies of the uh, the Who's Afraid of Alan Iverson cover into the locker room when the Sixers were playing the Knicks. Okay. And I gave him a copy of it, and he gives me this huge hug. Oh, yeah. And that, that was like <laughs> – that was uncharted territory for me. I wasn't getting hugged by NBA players, but like now it's like anytime I see AI, you know, it's just so much love. Like obviously like timing is a whole separate issue, but I think I'm sure Q Gaskins can fill an entire <laughs> podcast episode with stories about that. But there you go, Kevin. That's the answer to the question about importance. We had the ability to make you all feel a certain way. You know what I'm saying? And it wasn't, I, I, I think it wasn't about necessarily just like being on the cover. It was about the stories that we were telling about you all that was seen through the lens of basketball. You know what I'm saying? And, and it gave you a glimpse of how you kind of, in extension, I think how you all felt about yourself and how you all felt about the game of basketball. And we were somehow translating that in a way that no other publication was. So it wasn't just you made the cover. You all knew what this was going to be about. Forget the sales, you know, even even like the relationship with Alan, like not that it's secondary, but what that cover I think did, like it validated us in the eyes of people who are into hoop once they found out like really what AI could do and who he was, um, which I think made it better and a little bit easier. Like you could draw a straight line from that Alan Iverson cover to, this, to the Rafer Alston cover mm -hmm. or the Shamiqua Holdsclaw cover. You know, we put Shamiqua on when she was still at Tennessee. And I think uh, past Summit, rest in peace, I think she almost murdered Tony when she saw it because we put her in a Knicks uniform and, like, God knows what the NCAA violations were there. You know, but I, I think, like, you could trace that AI cover to, you know, maybe certainly skip. Like, someone be on a cover and you'd be like, who is that? But wait, they're on a slam cover, so I, I should probably know who this person is. So tell me about the 96 rookie photo shoot and why you only did one more after that speak about that first one though because that was such an iconic iconic group all of those guys panned out to be is what five or six hall of famers in that group and not only yeah. that that yeah. image that y'all used is like the image that comes back up when people talk about that draft class the, the funny thing and the craziest thing to me about that cover now is you look at that cover and i don't think you even necessarily notice right away that alan iverson's not on it mm-hmm yeah. Like, yeah, that class is yeah. so deep and so good that it's like, oh, shit, Kobe and Camby and Tuan and all these guys. And then you're like, wait a minute, where's, where's AI? <laughs> Where was AI? Right. <laughs> uh, he, he dipped. I was going to say, it, it was the classic two words of slam. AI left. AI left, yeah. <laughs> I, I, remember like Tony, I remember Tony calling the office and saying that happened, and it was like, you got to be kidding me. You have got to be kidding me. Tony was losing his mind. I was, I was there with him. But wait, here's the thing. That, you can actually do an entire podcast on that cover. Just the actual shooting of that cover. Mm -hmm. If we told you the whole story behind that, <laughs> it would be a whole other 45 minutes. It should, it should be a documentary. I know so we, really? they're doing an issue. Yeah, no, seriously. The, the only part of the story I always remember is Tony having to tell Todd Fuller, like, no, 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 this, you got, no, <laughs> you're not in this. <laughs> so like honestly like if you look at that cover and you look at the draft i think we did a better job than the gms did you yeah because it's only like 10 guys or 11 guys or whatever and like we had guys going you know deeper in the draft but we brought like nash and jermaine like there there were guys who turned out because we had to i tried to make sure it's possible we had to pick them out of here because 
The NBA did not know we were there. They couldn't know we were there. Mm-hmm. We had to go into the hotel and under assumed name. Like, so this was this was rookie transition. I'm, I'm guessing this is in Orlando. Yeah, Orlando. Yeah, rookie transition, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. And the NBA lead head of photography, Carmine Romanelli, <laughs> sick. Right, Carmine was like, "Look, y'all can't tell nobody you here. This has to be. This was some covert, straight up guerrilla photography type shit." <laughs> and we, but we literally, he said, "Look." I think he gave us 10 minutes, Russ. If I, he gave us like a total of 10 minutes. He said, you need to tell me exactly what players you want, and I will bring them to you. You all are going to set up in an alley behind the gym. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Which is, which is like super crazy because like what did he think that people would think when the magazine came out? They're just going to be like, oh, they got all these guys to come somewhere else? Like obviously eventually they're going to figure this out. Right. <laughs> NBA's going to figure it out. And we had to literally we're, – we're at a bar – the night before, literally draw, sketching out the players we have and where we want to, to position them because we only got 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. So we got to place players as it happens. And we're, as it happens, that's the Tony Tay, Todd Fuller. Nope, you're not part of this. <laughs> <laughs> and they're coming out, and I'm running around with a, with a water bottle because Tony and Don, Don Morris, who's the creative director, they wanted to look like they've been hooping. So they want to look like sweaters breathing down on them. I'm spraying dudes I don't even know with water bottles. Cats are running around. And we forgot Kobe had a broken arm. So we got a cast on his arm. So they're trying to shoot like, wait a minute. We can't shoot this cat with a broken arm. We got to hide Kobe's cast. So it's madness going on. And it's like literally. All in 10 minutes. No, Kevin, you know, you, you, we've all taken class pictures before. Yeah. You know that shit don't happen in 10 minutes. <laughs> That's all you had, though. That's all minutes. we had was 10 minutes. That's all we had was 10 minutes to get that iconic shot done. And I feel like, I feel like that's the answer of why we didn't do it again for so long. <laughs> right. <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like, and I don't even know, like, how often they did, like, rookie orientation. Like, did they even do that every year? Or, like- yeah, that's every year. So, rookie tra- so people who don't know rookie transition, that's where right before the season all the rookies get together who were drafted. Some guys who might have missed it the year before. We go in and go through classes. We can't leave at all. You ha- can't have any guests, but we do the photo shoots. We do everything we need to do for the all year. your cards. Everything. Cards. Uh, we sign cards. We interviews. Take the group photos. Everything in rookie transition. So, yeah. So, I understand why it was such a tough event to to get all of those guys in one photo. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny you saying you had to spray him down because I was talking to uh, Antoine Walker the other day, and he was. I asked him if they hooped during that, and it's like, no, 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 no time, no <laughs> time. Never, never, never. And I think like Jermaine said, it was like the first time he actually got his uniform. Yeah, you probably had a jersey, right. but he wasn't even at the draft, so he wouldn't have had it then. Right. Here's the here's the here's the back end of the story. That same weekend, the night before, when we're sketching out like this cover to get ready for this, that was the night we conceptualized the magazine Double XL. That Whoa. happened the night before. Yep. Wow. Yo. <laughs> yep. Wow. That's Hell what I'm saying. That whole there's a documentary in this cover. Hell of a ex- weekend. Hell of a weekend. You know what's crazy too? Like I didn't realize this until recently. I looked it up for whatever reason. Reasonable doubt dropped the day after the draft. <laughs> like you had the '96 draft, and then one of the best albums of all time in two days. Jay got that timing right. He's got a couple little dates like that. And Kevin, you're going to love this because he's your coach now. When we found out Allen Iverson wasn't coming because Allen was supposed to be on the cover right next to Stephon Marbury, mm-hmm. and we had to replace him. And so we were going to move Steve Nash from 
the back end of the gatefold to the front. <laughs> and Don was, and I either Don or Tony was like, no, we can't put him on the front of the magazine because his head is too big and he's going to cover up the L. It's going to look like the name of the magazine. Yo. Is <laughs> oh, God. He said, people are going to think the, move, the name of the magazine is Siam. We cannot do that. We got to move Steve Nash to the back. Yo, man, I, I could believe that too because there were conversations about blocking parts of the logo going way past that. I feel like in the, in the 2000s, it's like, Dennis, no one's going to not know what this magazine is. We're established now, Dennis. It's good. Now, back it's, in the day, that it's was okay. The whole thing. There's so many stories about that uh, cover, man. But, Russ, did we have any idea that it was going to be what it was? No, I don't think so. I mean, that's the thing. Like, you can, you can yeah. look back at stuff like that and say, like, what it turned into. Yeah. But, you know, who knew that even Kobe and Jermaine were going to work out the way they did? Because all you had to go on was Ke was Kevin Garnett from the year before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, and the idea of like a six six two guard going from high school to the NBA, like that seemed insane. Yeah, I nobody mean, nobody saw Kobe coming. Nobody. You know who did? You know who did? The the one person who did. And shout out to Tom Konchalski, who I think scouted high school starting with like ah, okay. literal Moses. Okay. But. <laughs> <laughs> he said something. He said something before the '96 draft that Co about Kobe having no weaknesses. Wow. Okay. And I mean, look, he dropped to he dropped to the Hornets. Like you know, you redo that draft, he should have been top ten. Man, I mean, come no on, shit, right? No doubt about that. You know, I th I hate that. I hate when people redraft things because it's like <laughs> whatever. You got to go on yeah. what people knew at the time. And to me, like, sure, you could say Kobe had a better career than Iverson, but if Philly picked Kobe, if Kobe had to play back where he played high school ball as a high school kid for that 76ers team, oh no. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, I'm sure ready. he turns out fine. Yeah, AI was more ready, but yeah, I mean, I, everybody fell to the perfect spot. He did. Kobe, I think so. Kobe think outside so. of a Laker uniform. I mean, obviously, right now it sounds, but. He had to play in, in LA. Yeah, it was meant to be. I think yeah. I, the only person the only person who probably didn't follow the perk spot was Vlade, who probably smoked like a whole carton of cigarettes before he decided <laughs> he would take that trade. <laughs> like, man, going from LA to, to Charlotte. Charlotte right, like, right. Come on, man. I hope someone threw him like an extra like ten million at some point later on to be like, you know what? You let us do this. We made a lot of money off that. Here you go. Dude, that, that 10 million came when he made the Hall of Fame. Let's be honest with you. You got to <laughs> Maybe right. that's it. Maybe that's it. That was the Hall of Fame. That was right, right, right. That was it. Hey, Russ, let me ask you a quick question. Who came up with the title Ready or Not for the Fugees at the time? Was that you? That's a good question. I don't think so. But that I mean, shit was if, you, if you go back, I mean, we were obviously pulling. We were pulling so many headlines and cover lines from whatever we were listening to at the moment or whatever was even out. You that's know? my go that's my go-to right there. I feel it. <laughs> I think like you that's could, what that's where the etceteras is from, right? So right. Yep. <laughs> if you flip through if you flip through back issues of slam, you could figure out exactly when we all started listening to Outcast in the office just based off headlines. <laughs> I feel like there was probably a whole issue with all Outcast headlines. But that one, whoever did that was brilliant. That was for that cover. Oh, it was perfect. It was, it was perfect. perfect. That sold it as much as the uh, the gatefold, the shot did. I I, and that's the thing, like, you know, going back to, like, saying how, like, some covers, like, had to sort of marinate and, like, some stuff, like, eventually wouldn't be proven false until way later. Right. That was one that got proven true and even more mm -hmm. true as time went on. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You know, it's like, obviously, like, AI had an amazing rookie year. Tuan had a great rookie year. Um Steph, but like other guys had to build to it. I mean, shit, Jermaine took four years. 
yeah. before he got to Indiana and, you know, all of a sudden was able to do the things he probably could have done in Portland right. if exactly. they played him. Exactly. Um, you know, Kerry Kittles was great. That's the crazy thing to me is like, you look at that cover now, you're going to look at so many other guys. And like, to me, like, there's kids now who don't know who Kerry Kittles is. Right. <laughs> and it's like, he's damn, man, he had a, he was damn good for a decade in the league. Right. Yeah. Hey, Kevin, let me ask you a question. What, was there a class that came along that you could think of would do justice to redoing that exact same cover? 2003. Okay. Brian Mello, Bosch, D-Wade. Man, we put we put Darko on one cover already. Thank God we don't have another <laughs> one with him on it. That's who I thought was going to get the treatment next. Okay, so if you if you were editor chief, you would have done that. You would have, or would you have given their their own space instead of recreating something else? See, that's the challenge, right? Yeah, that's the challenge. As a fan, I would have loved to see that every year. Okay, but I understand trying to you know do different things, you know, each and every cover. But as a fan, I would enjoy to seeing that every time. Man, so did you have a stack of slam magazines at the crib when you was younger? Like, what, what was you doing with all these? Because I know I had a bunch. I was ripping out pages, putting them on my wall. I was doing the whole nine. Like I said, I, I ran off with them before. Like, I had to have them. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what was you doing? You, you were stacking these up at the crib? My slam experience was just walking into the 7-Eleven and literally sitting on the floor going through the uh, <laughs> through the pages. You know, when you go to, go to 7-Eleven once a week, and yeah. once a month and sometimes you don't even you might miss a, a, a issue so you sitting over there I used to sit over there and just read through the issues and then eventually I started getting something sent to my house and I started taking the posters out so it was really mm-hmm. it really evolved for me because it's like damn I walk past the aisle and you see somebody on the cover and it's like yo this look cool. And then you start yeah. sifting through and you become a fan and you start showing that loyalty to a, a publication and I felt that way with Slam so you know from Seeing who was in the punk section to tearing out the posters just Slam just to like yeah. yeah just to like collecting them after a while you know I think it all all evolved but it's just that chase was just amazing. Yo, I can remember sitting there with the it, it was the slam of the month when T Mac threw it off the glass in the All Star game and you could see everybody's face just like yeah Did mm-hmm. he just I remember that joint. Do this? And I was just I remember just staring at the picture like in awe of that shit like. This is a perfect picture, and I had to have it on my wall, and I ripped it out of a slam. It's you sitting at the at the gas station at the liquor store reading it is is crazy to me, but but like we've all been there. I did the I did the joint, the little postcard, and you yeah. hit the bill me later. You send it, and you'll get a couple <laughs> in the mail for free. <laughs> Yo, I did that a couple times, yeah, dog. Like was doing was, anything for them joints, dog, man. It, you had to have them, right? Yeah. It was real serious, man. Yeah, and, was, and then I started. So once once I started to you know. You know, get a little recognition as a baller. You know, my whole thing was like, "Yo, I need to get in this punk section." So, <laughs> I, so once they, <laughs> once they had, once I made it to a, a level where I was like, "All right, I need to see if I can get this." It was just like, "Yo, that was probably the most exciting time." You know, that night before, knowing I had a photo shoot and knowing when this was, this was going to drop, I just knew everybody mm-hmm. was going to look at it. You know what I'm saying? So, and I knew how many core basketball fans that Slam had, and. After a while, that joint started, Slam started to get so big, it was just like, I was seeing everybody, all types of people who didn't even mm-hmm. watch Hoop like that started to, just because of the pictures, the shoes, just just how it looked, the aesthetic of it, it was just amazing too. So, Well, that, that's what I love about Slam too, 
it it got bigger than basketball, right? Mm-hmm. But it stayed in basketball. Like yep. it never left that world. Yep. Even when it got bigger, it was like, nah, we're still telling hoop stories. We're still tracking these dudes down. We're finding out who's better before everybody else. Even now, when it's not necessarily a mag, it's an online pub, they're still finding all the important kids. They're still talking to our favorite players. And th- they'll always be that authority on hoop to me. They'll always be. And because of that, because, like, look at us. We're hoops heads and look at how the experience we can. Literally sitting in the, in the liquor store, in the grocery store or whatever, and just flipping through that shit. Like, <laughs> yeah, who they getting got lost. in now? Yeah, you just what getting shoes, lost What shoes it. they got at the end? Yo, these, exactly. these joints is crazy. Yo, Adidas? Like, what? And it's like, you know, that's our experience with hoop. So... Yeah, man. It's dope to hear from, from you, though, because it's like you, you just kind of assume like you just walk around all cocky like, I'm going to be in that shit. I'm going to be in that shit. But to know you was over there like, nah, man, they better call me, bro. Like, <laughs> yeah, what I think every player was that way because it showcased the best of the best, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it wasn't just the most popular hoopers. It was just literally the best basketball players. You know, it was like you really had to, you know, you really had to be nice. And I, and I really appreciated that that aspect of it as I got older it was like man when you look back on it like only if you was on slam you was a you was nice <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying especially of a cover or a full article you was nice so that was definitely a you know a standard that was set every time you stepped on a court especially when you was in high school middle school it's like <laughs> man I'm, I want to just be nice at this and I see you know where this could take me What'd you do with the one, the first one you got coverage in? You went, you went, got that joint from the store. Like, what, you bought ten of them. Yeah, I bought the whole rack. Mom's bought the whole rack. This is my senior year in high Where? school. And we That's lived across hilarious. the street from a Seven Eleven, and yeah. a, a gas, and a, a couple gas stations on that same street. So we just went through there and we copped them all. The family had them. It was, it was really a special moment, bro. I just. It's just the fact that everybody that I love was in that magazine. And I yeah. knew that they, at some point, <laughs> all my favorite people <laughs> in the world might actually pick this up and, and peek through it. You know what I'm saying? So I had that hope, I guess. It was it was definitely like that young, you know, that young feeling that I had. Like, damn, I'm just, I finally made it. What Drake say, man? Uh, sometimes I wish I was where I was when I used to wish I was here. That's one of them ones, right? Yeah, that's one of like, yeah, yeah that was that's yeah. when it was real, right? Definitely. <laughs> All right, man. That's that's dope though. I to see the uh think of the real MVP out there picking up mm-hmm. <laughs> the stacks of stands is hilarious, yeah. dude. Yeah. <laughs> I, hey man, I'm a parent. I get it. Yep. I get it. I've yep. done some I've done some of the stuff. But yeah, man. All right, let's get back to scooping rust, man. In the moment, while you guys are doing this. Do you know you're in the middle of something special? Or are you just kind of moving so fast you don't know slam is slam at that point? And if you figured it out, when did you guys figure that out? When did you know this was something that was kind of bigger than life? That's a good question. I mean, I feel like, yeah, there were definitely some. There were certainly some, you know, especially later on. Um, you know, I think I think that Iverson's Soul on Ice cover was a big moment for us, you know? Um, that's when we got Julius Irving, too. Right. And we got to do something different with AI, you know? And I think like, cause we got the throwback thing early. Cause Mitchell and Ness wasn't even like popping like that yet. We were going there and spending a lot of money, but yeah. you know, it hadn't really made like a big thing. We, we did that. We didn't do it cause throwbacks were big. We did it cause we wanted to emulate this old Dr. J photo. And because the Sixers were playing in those jerseys on their hardwood classics night or whatever it was. Um, you know, I think, and that was during the lockout 
or around the time of the lockout. So like we were kind of scrambling, like, what can we do different? And, you know, that was kind of a point where doing things different turned into like, oh, this is how we're going to do things. Um, you know, go up like much later, we shot Braun for the rookie cover. Braun takes out the slam headband and put it on himself. We didn't ask him to do that. Like he just wanted to do that. You know, that was another big like, oh, you know, this is crazy. Right. Yeah. I think for me, it was a little bit different. Um, I knew it early. Um, and, and, you know, it, a lot of it just comes from being black. And I'm not trying to make you all laugh, but real talk, when I knew and kept hearing that the magazine was being stolen out of drugstores and grocery stores and, you know, people were literally stealing the magazines. I have definitely ran off with a few. Right, and, and that's <laughs> right, right. But that's some, that, that's, that's some hood shit on us, and that's when I knew it was going to be big because usually when something becomes big in, in our culture, in black culture, when it comes big to us, America follows it immediately. So when I was going into my local Walgreens or Dwayne Reed or whatever, you know what I'm saying, and Slam is out, and I'm hearing the managers, I'm like, and I'm asking, hey, will you ask Slam? Yeah, we had them, but people stole them. I'm like, okay, now we're about to, you know, now we're on to something big. That's what I knew. I knew early. And, you know, and being, you know, that brother that is still living in, still connected to how we roll as black people, just hearing it on a regular basis and what it meant to us and how we basically kind of took our own little ownership of it, the same way we take ownership of Black Twitter. That's when I knew, for me, Slam was going to be big. I don't know if Russ or Tony and Dale, I don't know what they were feeling, but to me, that's when I knew early on that this was going to be some big shit because we connected with us. The magazine connected to us really soon, really quick. One, because of the presentation, but two, it's because of the sport. You know, we took ownership of basketball anyway. So to have something to speak for us, to us, about us, and in their minds by us, yeah, I kind of knew it was, you know, I felt the bigness early because of that. Oh, you know, also, like, on a, on a note was, like, it's funny you talk about that 96 rookie shoot and how we had to sort of do things on the NBA's terms and, like, try and squeeze our way through that stuff. I think there was another moment, like, when we – didn't have to deal with that as much anymore. You know, when we could hire our own photographers and we could set up our own shoots and like kind of do this stuff outside of the NBA purview where it's like, oh, we'll give you like four frames on the end of this shoot. It's like, oh, great, thanks. You know, <laughs> or like, you know, here's this stuff you could pick. Um, you know, it's funny, like, because at first, like we would get like photo edits too of action. Like we would just hit up the NBA and be like, yeah, we're doing a story on whoever, whoever, like send us however many shots. And eventually, and that was a big part of my job, like pretty much the whole time, like I would go to the NBA entertainment offices in Secaucus and be going through like folders and folders and folders of images. Because at some point you're like, yo, like, what are you sending us? Like, it all had to be full frame. It all had, like, there were these rules they had to follow. And for me, I'm like, damn, yo, I'll take a shot if the ball's cut off, if it's a better shot. You know, like I didn't want the NBA pre-selecting what images we were going to show because I think like we were trying to show the sport a different way than they were, you know. And at some point, I think they realized like our way of showing it was just as valid and was probably reaching an entirely different audience that they were probably having trouble reaching. I know, I know for me on the media side, reading that 
as you know 10 12 as a teenager then and seeing that this was possible I, you could talk about basketball and use these words like words that i use when i talk it didn't have to be ap style it didn't have to be a new york times article you know we could talk about hoop like this and people could do this for a living like this could be a job you know, when you're young and you don't know what writer, how writers are really living, you think like the writers are out there rich and famous, right? <laughs> Kicking it with all the celebrities. I'm like, yo, that's crazy. Like, I didn't, I didn't know you could do that. And I know for a lot of people, like Bill Simmons was that to them, like, the, the way he wrote and in that tone. But for me, it was slam. Like, it was, it blew my mind that this was possible. I didn't know that that was a thing you could do. And sports media is set, so set in its ways because it goes back, you know, they were writing about baseball in the beginning of the ninth in the 20th century, right? So it's a little different from music media, which I got into later, and like they'll let you have your tone. But Slam opened that up for a lot of people. Like like Scoop said earlier, the room got a little darker when we start seeing Scoop in, in these media rooms and stuff. And then, you know, he he he's throwing in Jay-Z bars to talk about this player and that player. And it's like, yo, that's that's the shit I be thinking about. So that's crazy. And it, it had that's when I kind of knew it was special for me when it showed it, it enlightened me and like other people who wanted to get in the media. Yo, you could do this. Like, that's crazy. So it, it always had that impact. And I know it did for a lot of guys. So it's funny too. Cause I think we, I think we kind of walked a line where it's like, and I always hated Bill Simmons. Uh, I'll be straight up. Like <laughs> he blocked me on Twitter. I think before I was even on Twitter, we, we got into it when he was still the Boston sports guy. And, like, he wrote some shit about – I'll never forget it. He wrote some shit about Stefan and when Stefan was on the Nets. And he said some shit about how Steph didn't care about winning and, like, he only wanted to do for him or whatever else. And I ended up sending an email. I'm like, dude, I'm at those games every night. I've seen Steph have a 10-point game where they win and he's ecstatic. I've seen Steph score 35 and they lose and he is a mess. Like, don't be talking about shit you don't know. And like, you know, I think, and Kevin, you've probably said that to me before, but you know. <laughs> you and everybody else. Yeah, he says to everybody, man. He said to everybody. <laughs> but no, I mean, th there is something about like, if you're going to write about a guy, you should go in and face him afterwards and be able to deal with that and be mm -hmm. able to take it, you know? And like, Obviously, Scoop stood out more than any of us at that point, certainly in NBA locker rooms. <laughs> I could like at least hide behind other white beat writers. Raisin in a bowl of milk. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm saying it, you know, if you're going to say some shit, stand up for it, you know, and like know what you're talking about. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I think the good thing about being in locker rooms, writing features or whatever was like, you didn't have to be in that first scrum. You know, we didn't have to be the dude's coming up to Kevin being like, hey, what happened when you missed that shot in the start of the third quarter? Or like, why'd you throw that pass away? You know, we could like stay back and after a while be like, yo, what are you doing this summer? Or like, you know, what are you listening to this week? Or, you know, trying to get a little more granular into things instead of being on that like, oh my God, mm -hmm. like stop asking me the same question everyone's asking <laughs> me because you need that quote for the back page tomorrow. Yeah. You know, I think me and Patrick Ewing were able to develop a relationship because I never bothered him. I mean, he scared the shit out of me sometimes. <laughs> he would just come out all iced up and be like, they would, he would talk for like three minutes and then they'd be like, that's it, done. Yeah. After he retired, we had some great conversations though. I remember the, one of the biggest arguments I got into with White Wilbon before he even came over to ESPN was about exactly that, Russ. Um, 
it was during some I, I, one championship series, something like that. And everybody's coming from the locker room, rushing back to the press room, trying to get this stuff done. And I'm just like, you know, chilling. You know, I'm chilling. And, you know, as, as newspapers, beat reporters and newspaper writers always get on those of us who don't do what they do. You know, you all lucky you all have to do this deadline. You, you don't do real writing. He, you know, he gave me that little rant and stuff like that. And I'm like, you know what, Michael? <laughs> I said, you can write a column in the Washington Post and it'd be fucked up. And two days later, you could cover for that fuck up. You know what I'm saying? And guess what? If you don't write the shit, the whole Washington Post is not going to go down. All right? What I have to write has to stand for six weeks. And if I fuck this up, this whole magazine goes down. So don't talk to me about what your deadline means and how much more important it is than what we do over here at this magazine. This shit has value. You know, and that's the kind of fight we always had to ever get. And Mike was like, you know what? Nobody ever presented it to me like that. But that's, we had to do that. You know, we presented ourselves differently. The magazine was different. You know, we all were kind of different. And we had to go through that shit with other members of the media about us even having value. But we continue to try to back that value up with content. You know what I'm saying? And by making them understand our role in this game. Our role is not to be your competition. We are not trying to be like you. We're not trying to take your writers. We're not trying to take your photographers. We're not trying to take your layout people. We're not trying to take your advertisers. We're not doing that. We have our own fucking lane. You know, and all we'd like for you all to do is first acknowledge it and secondly, respect it. But don't come off the bat doing neither. And that's where we always ran into stuff, but we always fought through that. I mean, I remember catching shit from even like PR people, like team PR people. You know, about oh, yeah. like, why are you in here or whatever? What yeah. are you doing? And it's like, but if I didn't have something to work on immediately, like I'd still be at every Nick game and every net game if possible. And you're just relationship building. You know, I would talk to you, Kevin, or someone, you know, or, or whoever, like just knowing like down the line, I'm going to be doing something, you know, and I want you guys to be comfortable with us. And like, I want to have this background on things, you know, like I don't need to know what happened in the third quarter. Right. You know, I'm going going further along than that. Those are your least favorite questions, right, Kevin? Yeah, of course. Yeah. But it's funny, like, and I'm sure Scoops have moments like this. I remember, like, because a lot of the beat guys would group up, you know, especially at big events like All Star or Finals or whatever, and like kind of move from player to player and get what they need. And uh, this might have been, this might have been DC All Star. Was it DC or Philly? It was one of those two. And uh, I went in the Western locker room while everyone was still in the East and like no one's in there. And I start talking to Kobe about something and we're just bullshitting, whatever. And the seat next to him is open. So I'm like, I'll just sit down and we're just talking. And I think it was the year that they played the Nets right outside the all-star break and Steph dropped 50 in an overtime game. I think the Lakers won, mm -hmm. but so we're, I'm talking to him about Steph, about whatever, whatever, and just kind of lose track of things. And at one point I look up and the entire media had come into the Western Conference locker room and is all standing in front of Kobe's locker waiting for him to talk. And I'm just like, I just got up. I'm like, all right, I'll catch you later. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like not only do we not want the stuff you guys want, like not only are we not doing the same things, we don't even want to be in that. Like I'm not right. trying to get in your way. Right. While right. you scrum up on somebody, like I don't want to be thought of as that. I don't want to just be like another guy in that group. 
But those are those organic bonds that made Slam go from like this underdog publication to the authority for basketball media. And and that's where you guys did the groundwork, meeting these guys, knowing guys and, and actually knowing them rather than going, yo, uh, on this set, you were supposed to curl and da 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 and what happened, you know. So <laughs> that's that's what makes that magazine great. That's what makes the legacy of that great. Just caring about it. I yeah. mean, I remember, I remember when Alonzo Mourning got sick with his kidney situation. I remember taking a flight to Miami just to see him, to say what's up. Mm-hmm. Like, no story, no nothing. Like, oh, shit. And I don't even know Zoe like that. You know what I'm saying? I don't even know Zoe like that. But I'm like, oh, shit. One, he's playing with my guy, Timmy Hardaway. Two, his wife went to Howard University, so I know her from there. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, mm-hmm. this dude might die. You know, his kidney has failed. He might die. And I'm like, you know what? I caught one of those easy $80 software flights. <laughs> Seriously, I did. Went yeah. out there and then, yo, you know, I just came to check to see if you're good. He said, man, I'm fine. I appreciate that. This, that, and the other. He said, so, so, you know, you want to set something? No, I'm not trying to set shit up, man. I just came. I literally, I just jumped on the plane just to make sure, That's you real. know, that you good. That's it. I'm out. You know, and I'm out. But doing shit like that. On a regular basis, like driving, you know, I'm in Chicago, driving to Indiana or driving to uh, Milwaukee, catching the Bulls game, catching, or if, if we're in New York in the office, you know, Russ just doing something, so right, let's go to Nick game. We're not covering anything. You know what I'm saying? We just go, hey, just came to say what's up, give that. And that's it, and leave it alone. I think, and it's not even just building something, something going on. It just shows, hey, you know what? We care about y'all. You know what I'm saying? We, we, it's not, we, we show you what we're doing from a magazine standpoint. Not, we're not out here to dog you. That's one thing. But just, you know, we're kind of in this culture together, and that's what I think is most important, is that you play basketball for a living, we write basketball for a living, we're both involved in this culture of basketball. Not the sport, not the NBA, not the game. There's a culture of this game that we're still connected to. So I'm just trying to make sure, as you being a member of the culture, that you're good. Kev, you remember talking about this? How all the pieces of hoop story kind of matter? Like everybody within this in this community matters. Yeah, we yeah we we had that conversation about everybody plays a small part in this thing. It's all for the greater good of the game, and this game advances so many people and has so many different avenues. So when that love of the game is shown, even in a place like the locker room after a game, after you lose a game, and you see guys that who truly love it instead of the guys who just trying to get the story, and then those are the ones you know that's trying to advance the game, and that's the ones we appreciate the most. And like you said, that relationship, that relationship always start in high school because what you guys presented to us as 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 young players as well. So it was always it felt like we were always connected. We were always meant to align, especially if you were making it to the NBA. Being at being in front of you guys was definitely it, it was supposed to happen. So it, that's how you stood out in those locker rooms. We seen that. If we felt that energy early on. Fellas, I think y'all perfectly encapsulated, you know, what we going for with the et ceteras and in Scoop, you talked about it a lot. You know, these guys are more than just bouncing the ball on the court. And they're multifaceted people. And you guys did a great job of showing that in the magazine. You know, we'd have features and there might be no stats in there. <laughs> you, re- you read a story about, you know, <laughs> what this dude's listening to and, and what he's kind of going through in life right now while he's hooping. Whereas in other places you're going to get, yeah, he scored 27 points and he did this or they lost and they did this. Y'all presented them as actual people. And that's kind of one of the goals here with the et cetera. Like, I feel like people need to understand that 
you know, these athletes, these people in within this world, celebrities and so on and such, they're, they're more than just what we see on the TV, what we see on the screen. So I appreciate the work y'all did in, in that effort. And y'all have been doing for over 20 years now. We appreciate y'all. Yes, we appreciate y'all. Yes, thank sir. you for the kind words and the love and respect over the years, man. Really, no doubt. Yeah, of course. I was gonna say sometimes you couldn't do the stats because same thing. We're working like four <laughs> weeks out, and it's like, oh man, those numbers ain't even matter by the time we get done. But uh, true. But no, it's funny. I, I did want to add that, like, you know, I feel like even when we did interviews, and like, you know, not that we didn't put our research in and and hopefully like actually ask decent questions, but I always approach interviews like a conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, like. It always trips me out, and I'm sure you feel the same way, Scoop. Like someone, some publicist or like a PR person will be like, "Can you send a list of questions?" I'm like, "A what? <laughs> like I don't have a list of questions." <laughs> like I feel like that'd be like me asking Kevin, "Like, can you send me a list of shots for the next game?" <laughs> like that thing doesn't work like that. <laughs> like, <laughs> it all builds yeah, off the first yeah, one. Like yeah. if I ask a question yeah. and it goes in a certain direction, I'm not going to be like, "Yeah, I don't want to talk about that. I got this list. I need to follow this list." <laughs> nah, like. I don't know, like half the times, like we'd end up like somewhere completely different, but that was the fun of it. You know, it's like, and I always look at it like that. Like, you know, like Scoop said, we're, we're, Slam is doing this 96 issue right now on that cover. Mm -hmm. um, and I talked to Anton Walker the other day. I haven't talked to Anton Walker, man, I don't even remember when he was on the heat, maybe. I mean, it's been a while. And same thing, we're on the phone for like an hour, you know, mm -hmm. and it's just like, it's not, it's not like getting through this set list of questions. It's just like, yo, like, I miss you guys. Like I said that to him. I'm like, this makes me feel like sitting in the visitor's locker room at Continental Airlines Arena, you know, talking <laughs> to him and getting made fun of by Paul Pierce or like, you know, whatever else. Like, it, it's just, it was fun, man. Yeah. And I think we need to, uh, I think the last thing we do, I, I'm, I'll, I'll say this, we need to give credit where credit is due because... We were able, and Russ, I think, co sign on this. We were able to function freely. And oh, 100%. One of the reasons I think uh, you got other journalists and other publications acting in certain ways because they can't operate freely. They mm -hmm. don't have the sense of freedom that we had. But that goes to slam basically somewhat being independent in its existence. It's not like Sports Illustrated was owned by Time Warner. You know, there was no big conglomerate that had ownership and was pulling strings on how this thing was supposed to function. Slam was basically independent. Now, other entities owned it, but they let the publisher, Dennis, function freely. Mm -hmm. He let us function freely. Yo, I got to that office in 96, and it was like, Word, I can write whatever I want. Yes, exactly. it's just gonna get in there. Exactly. Like, I'm sure if I go back and read noise now, there'll be lines where I'm like, they let me say that, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> to me, that all becomes yeah. a, because a part of something being independently run. And when you have an independent mindset and you're trying to, you know, find your place in the game or establish your place in the game, this is what you have to do, especially if this is true to who you are. And Slam is a, it is a great example of what happens when you can deal with independent functionality not necessarily independent ownership but independent functionality where the people who are creating content and the people who are in charge of the entire publication are functioning independently with a sense of freedom you'd be shocked what could happen when you let creatives be creative <laughs> we might mess some things up every once in a while but all in all it's for the best i definitely right. tried to write some stories like scoop uh, in the beginning and that, that was probably a really bad idea but you know we, we all got past it but scoop i mean like i said earlier like 
Scoop inspired a ton of writers out there, including myself. So, Absolutely. you know, all praises to Scoop for what he did. Thank you, Russ. Thank you, Russ. Thank you. I appreciate no it. No doubt. And continues to do. I shouldn't say that in the past tense. I don't know what I'm doing. Thanks for not well, putting my roses on me, man. Thanks. Russ. <laughs> 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 well, look, uh, I appreciate you fellas. And, and, you know, Russ, you said it perfect. You, you, you show up to interviews wanting to have a conversation, not an interview. That's our aim here. And I think we had a great one. So, Thank you guys. Thank you guys for your time. And, you know, hopefully we'll do it again another time, man. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you both. Appreciate you fellas for coming on, man. You guys meant a lot to the culture. You still mean a lot to us, man. Appreciate your love for the game, your love for the art, man. man. Thanks for coming can't on. Can't wait to see you back on the court, man. Yes, sir. And I can't, I can't speak for current management, but Slam's got to put you on another cover soon anyway. Yeah, I know, we need right? that. And get, get, you know what? I should cross lines and come over and do it. That'd be dope. Oh, yeah, now we're guys, talking. Right? Yeah. See, I never see. I was gone before Kev he became into the league. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. ESPN yeah. to be pissed as shit, but you know, hey. <laughs> <laughs> It's a one-off, man. If I get fired, Kev got a job for me, so I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> oh, yeah, you good. Don't even worry about that. Both of you guys are straight gonna, with we, me. We're going to make it happen, man. We're going to make it work. <laughs> All right, go. fellas. Uh, appreciate it, fellas. I right, appreciate y'all. All right, guys. Thank you.